that's all for us. I'm Casey McCall alongside Dan Rydell. If you've had half as much fun watching the show as we've had doing it, well, then we've had twice as much fun doing the show as you've had watching it. In three, two, one. Good evening, everybody from New York City. I'm Dan Rydell alongside Casey McCall. Those stories plus. Hi, I'm Adam Amin. I'm Steve Cimino. And we are back for another episode of Those Stories Plus. I feel like so much has changed in the last couple of weeks since we've been away. We took just a little tiny break, and you're right, the whole world seems to be different now. I'm looking at but, it from a whole new perspective. <laughs> you are now a three decades old human. Oh, you had to remind me right off the bat. I can't imagine there's much to it. I mean, I'm going to experience it in a couple of months. Like, I cannot fathom that it's a big deal. It honestly didn't feel like it at all. However, I did spend like the day before my 30th birthday kicking field goals a lot in Nashville. I know that's a strange uh, segue there. but that's a, that's a sentence I don't think I've, I ever thought I would hear. Well, I went from 29-year-old kicking field goals to 30-year-old really hurting. So that's what <laughs> I woke up sore in ways that I didn't know I could be sore. So that was the only kind of kick in the teeth. Otherwise, no, you know, I feel okay. 30's not so bad so far. It was a question whether or not you'd make it a 30. You you and Kanye West, I would I always question whether or not the two of you. <laughs> That's not, not the only thing that Kanye and I have in common. <laughs> of the uh, resemblance in so many ways. <laughs> and sp uh, but, speaking of milestones, you've been just all over the television lately, including uh, some ESPN MLB. Uh, first one. First one was uh, last week in Anaheim. I got to do a Major League Baseball television broadcast for the first time. I've been doing radio for a long time, and it was uh, it was cool. It was awesome to finally uh, get that opportunity. But uh, I'm I'm beat, man. It's it's been a long run on the road, and that's part part of the reason why we were away for so long. I was in the midst uh, midst of uh, six games in twelve days in seven different cities, and uh, I just got back at around midnight last night from Denver. And uh, I'm happy to be home, and I'm happy to be back. So uh, I'm glad we finally get to run back to, to doing what we uh, what we enjoy doing it is, and uh, re recording this. As, as happy as I've been to be watching you on TV and smiling and seeing you making it to the big time, I'm also sitting here like, I kind of miss talking about sports now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember go, I, like, the other day I was going back and watching and taking notes, and, and I'm like, oh, this is what we were – we were excited to do, so I'm, I'm happy we're back, and we got an awesome episode to talk about. Oh, yeah. We are going to talk today about episode seven of the first season called Dear Louise. I think pretty close to the top of both of our lists of uh, most favorite episodes, I would say. I think so, and, and a common I, – I guess you can call it common. It's happened twice. We've seen it in, in the West Wing as well, but the, uh, the letter-writing narration perspective I think, I, I think is pretty cool. So uh, it, it was cool to, to see that this was the first time it actually happened, and then for those – West Wing fans who remember the episode The Stackhouse Filibuster, I believe in season two, that they get a shot to really like experience it for, for a second time. And I actually kind of like it. I, really, I, I agree with you that I really like this, this narrative device because it allows you to kind of, it's almost that dramatic irony where the, our narrator knows what happened, but we don't. And so we're like, oh my God, what's going on? It's used sparingly, which is good because too much of this could be a little bit like, oh, more of this, but... This is the first and only one of two times on Sports Night we see this, so it's, it's, it is nice. And this being the first time, it's a totally new experience for me. I had never really seen an episode of television like this until I saw the West Wing episode and then until I saw this episode. It is also one that I was just kind of looking back through my notes. This is a nice break from drama it's just an episode that's just yeah. more for funny lines funny scenes and we've got kind of a lot of character development as as jeremy explains things about each of them that it takes a rest from the 
the drama side of things to just kind of, hey, I'm going to fill you in on some blanks. We're going to talk about what's been going on with everybody personally. We get a few little uh, little holes filled in from previous episodes. We hear about Christian Patrick briefly. So, like, it's nice to kind of take a step back and just be like, where are we now seven episodes in from where we started? And the laugh track in this episode, for whatever reason, it, like, it happened to fit. in like I, And you and I are not exactly... Uh, proponents of the laugh track in this particular series but for whatever reason there were these little uh, pauses that we'll talk about later uh, in one of the in a uh, specific scene Uh, but there are these little pauses where the laugh track just kind of fills it in just right so if this is this is probably my favorite laugh track episode where it is lighter and it almost feels like it fits a little bit more in this episode compared to the first five or six where we've had shades of the laugh track and it just didn't feel like it, it, it belonged. Yeah. It's, it feels like they finally were either starting to give in and not want to push it so much, or they were just finally understanding like, Oh, it works in extreme moderation instead of let's throw it after every line that could be just a little bit of a chuckle. Yeah. I think, I think that's exactly right. I think you need to have the right context and the right scenario and the right tone, which I think is a great point that you made. This is the right tone for the laugh track to kind of be utilized at its at its best in this episode. Yes. Well, let's uh, let's dive in, shall we? Yes, sir. Episode seven, dear Louise. Original air date was November tenth, nineteen ninety eight. Written by David Walpert and Aaron Sorkin, and of course directed by Tommy Shalami. This is, I think, what the only second episode that is not just Sorkin. So it's it's uh, we're getting that second perspective here from another writer. And I'm always curious here. I know that the the way they the way that they credit writers either with the word and or with an ampersand means... Yeah, that's an interesting but, debate, right? But with everything I looked at with this one, it just seems to be a comma. So I, I don't know what that means exactly. Because <laughs> if it's an and, doesn't it mean like they're kind of like a writing tandem? And if it's an and, then it's two separate writers who happen to team up in this yeah. particular regard? It's either, uh, it's either we were partners or, like, I wrote a draft and then you took that draft and worked on it when we didn't do it together. That's that's the difference. This one, I don't know because I'm, I'm literally right. just dealing with a comma here. But, <laughs> but well, I, I looked up David Walpert's uh, resume, and it's a really, really impressive resume as not only a writer but as a producer. Oh, let's hear it's, it. He's been a consulting producer on Scrubs. He's been a co-executive producer of New Girl, which is a show that I really enjoy, uh, an executive producer on House of Lies. Uh, Will and Grace, he's been a consulting producer. Just Shoot Me. Pretty solid resume that this guy has put together. And you can see, like, this guy has turned a, a, a career out of a lot of interesting sitcoms with a lot of interesting characters. Well, our uh, synopsis on our beautiful 10th anniversary DVD collection tells us, Jeremy writes a letter to his sister Louise to describe life at sports night, including the hard work, the humor, and a romantic surprise from Natalie. That's all we got. That's a short. That's a shorter synopsis than I feel like we're used to. It's but, true. Uh, and but, but, but again, little, little nitpickiness for the editors of the booklet here. No Oxford comma, and that drove me crazy. Oh, so are you? You are a fan of the Oxford comma, as am I. Absolutely. I, I had literally, as I was copying it, typing it out of the booklet, I was like, Oh no, what are we doing here, guys? Somebody's got to well, sit down. I love those like uh, BuzzFeed posts when it's uh, when, it, when it says like, "This is when the Oxford comma is really important, and it separates things like eating." Dinner or eating your grandmother, or right? Whatever. Hey, there's a lot of those examples out there. So I'm a big proponent of the Oxford Cup. It's uh, a small but important difference, only if you're nerdy enough to be paying attention to it. <laughs> oh, but all right, let's let's get going on, dear Louise. Here, so we open up middle of a show. Uh, Dan is kind of previewing what's to come. Mentioned some championship billiards, and as it starts to wrap up, 
um, we end up with Casey making another dad joke right off the bat with his, if you had half as much fun watching this show as we had making it, then we've had twice as much fun making it than you've had watching it. Well, isn't that a total you joke? Like, don't you, as like a geek of, of writing and grammar and someone who teaches a lot of this stuff, don't you love that joke? I, I do, which makes me feel even more like a 30-year-old now that I'm like, <laughs> this is great. But it's uh, it's definitely Casey from everything we've seen saying these silly grammar odd play on word jokes, but it, it works for him, and it's always it's always nice to see Casey's inner dork shine through. And I've noticed this is completely irrelevant to everything that's going on. But have you ever noticed when the credits are running in the show, what is going to be up next? It's always the same thing. Do you ever notice what it is? No, I haven't seen that. It's monster trucks. It's always monster trucks. Really? So CSC apparently is playing like Monster Jam or something at oh, midnight. The, the video, the video. Yeah, of next like, to the as the credits roll, there's a video like coming yeah, up you're next. Right. You're right. There's only apparently there are three things that they show, and it's it's sports night, monster trucks, and one a.m. billiards. Oh, yeah. which sounds like a startup sports network. <laughs> it's that's why they're in third place, baby. Oh, so we we move forward, and Dan is trying to get Casey into going out. He wants to go to El Perro Fumando, where if you wear something blue, you get $2 off a giant blue margarita, which sounds like a pretty good deal to me, actually. The flaming dog. Smoking dog. Not the flaming dog? Dog's not gay. I wasn't suggesting the dog was gay. I was suggesting the dog was on fire. He's not smoking on fire. He's smoking a cigarette. He's smoking a pipe. He's smoking a cigar. I say he's gay. I love that back and forth. I really enjoy that back and forth between talking about what's blue and getting $2 off and is the dog gay or is he flaming or is he on fire? I just really <laughs> like this back and forth. And you're right. This is a very good tone setting scene for the rest of the show and how lighthearted it really is. Oh yeah. Even though, even though there are some serious moments, it's a very lighthearted show. Fitting with, with what we just talked about with the laugh track. My note here is smoking, flaming gay dog, subtle laugh track. So just knowing that <laughs> it's just peppered in there. It is quite funny how they're all debating this argument. I also, I, I made a little note, not that, I don't know if it's it's it just feels kind of 90s that they're making these kind of str- not really a gay joke. It's not at the expense of anybody, but it just to be like, oh, the gay dog, the flaming dog. It seems like, whoa, would you still do that now? I feel like the, the climate might be a little bit different, but there's obviously no like negative connotations being said. It's just sort of like a funny like it's like watching a movie from the 80s and they're, they're you know, they're saying things you're like, oh, my God, could you say that still? I feel like this is right at the cusp, you know, like you could probably say this stuff. Uh, in the right context, because again, they're not there. There's no malicious intent with any of this writing. It's like, but but even like the Casey line, like I wasn't uh, into, you know, like I, I wasn't intimating that the dog was gay, and as if if the dog were gay, that would be offensive or right. something like that. So like, so I understand what you're saying. I feel like this is like just just uh, lighthearted enough that w- to to the point where it just wouldn't really matter with this particular scene. But I know exactly what you're talking about, and this is only you know. 15, 16 years ago that this stuff was written and it already feels like you wouldn't be able to do some of this stuff in a modern day setting now. So the whole gang seems to be getting ready to go out. They're all very excited about it. Uh, Casey gets swayed after Dan says, Dana's coming, which to him goes, boogie shoes? Which apparently when uh, when Dana has like half a margarita, there's he says, a better than even chance that she'll get on a table and dance to the song Boogie Shoes by Casey and the Sunshine Band. I love the just simple explanation if when he's uh, when Casey's trying to convince Jeremy to come, who says, oh, I don't know, I'm going to do something. He says, if uh, if you wear something, you get something else for less money than you would normally. <laughs> he doesn't even know, but he's just going because he knows Dana is probably going to get sloshed and dance. 
do you know anybody like that 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 just that is done after a half a margarita not necessarily like passing out drunk but just like becomes a completely different human being after a small amount of alcohol i know a couple i mean it goes a couple different ways where either just enough makes somebody very very the beer muscles kick in and the anger sets in okay i I also know some on the other half where half a beer gets in and suddenly you're just a a wet noodle who's just (laughs) kind of flopping around all day long but either way it can be fun it's just it it sets the tone for the night am i going to jail or am i taking somebody to bed like you never know (laughs) but we find out we find out jeremy doesn't want to go because he's going to write a letter to his sister and here's one of those dating lines casey says oh i do everything by phone nowadays i don't write letters anymore which right away, like who even now, aside from the fact that you just had your house phone ring. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I, I, my, the irony of it, the <laughs> irony of having a house phone ring is legitimate. But uh, but not, but you could use that same line today where it's like, oh, I don't even talk to anybody now. I do everything by text. Right. right? I feel like nine times out of ten, you 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 can do your banking. You can pay any bill you want. Like everything happens either on your phone through the Internet or uh, or through a text. So, yeah, it definitely kind of flip flops. There's that little change right there. Um we find out that he no, he can't talk to his sister on the phone because she's deaf, which will come up again later on, obviously. So his sister Louise is deaf, and so he writes her he writes her letters. Natalie here is trying to get him to go as well. She's really pushing and flirting, which I find adorable, and she's just kind of trying to make any connection here. There's some awkwardness. You can just tell. They're kind of like, um, uh, how are you doing? Do you yeah, need stamps? Do you need stamps? Yeah, the, the stamps line always makes me laugh. And that's it's so funny because it's a parallel to how Dana was flirting uh, earlier in the season with Casey when she was saying, do, do you have spoons? You got knives? You got right. forks? You know, like it's, I feel like, I feel like we might be seeing a pattern. I don't know if this is, this is just in the writing <laughs> and Aaron Sorkin thinks this is how every single woman on the planet <laughs> flirts. But, uh, a lot of it is, is just kind of, I, I think you're right. I think it's more about making a connection like, Hey, do you need stamps? I can, I can help you out with stamps yeah, or just, whatever. It is. Just looking it's, for that little, that little in somehow like, Oh, let me do this for you. Let me do you a favor whatever it might be. And it, and it is really adorable. Like, like Natalie is very endearing in this moment. And it's, we're all, I'm sure all of us are kind of like, what are you doing, dude? Like she's clearly, she's clearly trying to do something nice for you. She is clearly uh, interested in you. And I think that's gone on, gone on for the last, you know, what episode, episode and a half at this point. And uh, it, it's nice to feel like there might be some sort of payoff coming up on it. Oh yeah. We had, an episode or two ago, Dana say that she's been throwing herself at you and he missed the whole thing. So he's, again, probably missing this whole thing as she's trying very hard to flirt. We end this scene with another funny uh, line about El Perro Fumando as Dan asks, well, how do we know the dog is a he? And Well, El Perro is masculine. It's masculine, yeah. That, well, sounds like Dana's translation has him leaning another way, which is... <laughs> a very nice, subtle, subtle line that an, is really, really funny. It's the perfect little little capper to the scene, and it's it's it just shows that pitter-patter that these guys have. That It's what everybody wants with the people they work with, I think. Is this the? Uh, is that the George Costanza theory of uh, let's always leave on a laugh, let's always go out on a high right. note when ah, we can? That's all for me. Yes, taking off, as, just as leaving them. As soon as you nail it, you're out of here. That's it. Don't waste. Uh, don't <laughs> just hit that high note and take off before anyone's opinion of you can change. We go to commercial and we come back with the letter being written. Jeremy saying, "Dear Louise," and we get some background. Uh, he's only worked there about three months, but it feels like home. And this is the first time anyone has asked him to go out, which he says is a kind of a, a big moment for him right there. So he's going to make it a short one because he really wants to meet him out there. Now, this is this is something I had a little question about. I know it, the three months that all that all checks out, but it seems like they've been very close already. Is, do you think this is just the first time that everyone has kind of gone out? It's the first time we've seen them go out 
Or do you yeah. think like it's just the first time they're like, hey, let's bring Jeremy into the fold? I, I wonder about that because uh, it's it, you're right. It does feel like they've all been they've all kind of had each other's backs, and I'm a little surprised that if if at, if at three months it's taken uh, the crew to kind of warm up enough to Jeremy, or, or maybe it's because they know Natalie really likes him and vice versa. So maybe this is kind of the point where you can. You know, you're like, hey, let's let's try to make this happen in some capacity. Maybe everybody's trying to get behind him a little bit. But yeah, I'm a surprise. Like a, a three month stretch it seems kind of long. So we're already getting into like the winter time here. We're getting into you know November, late November, December. I would think at this point, oh, right? Oh yeah. Well, I think uh, well, next episode Thespis is on the it's Thespis Thanksgiving. Thing. It's That's November right. yeah, it's twenty something. Right? Yeah. So it's got to be a week before that, maybe two weeks before that. So yeah, we're getting into the that winter that winter scene. So that all I love that that checks out. That oh, I've been here three months and it's been about three months that the show's been kicking. Exactly. So that's a cool note there. He starts to dive into his letter and we go right there into flashback mode as we start to get uh, some background right into Dan wigging out. He's called in Casey for an emergency. What's going on? Where have you been? Well, I was in editing. Kim said there was an emergency. It is an emergency. Is it your mom? What's wrong with my mom? I'm asking. It's not my mom. Well, what is it? Why did you say it was my mom? I didn't say it was your mom. Yeah, but you jumped to that right away, which makes me think there's something wrong with my mom, Casey. What's wrong with my mom, man? Danny. Danny. And they kind of go back and forth. You're having a writer's block emergency. This is the problem here. Dan can't write. What are you working on? Red Wings Flyers. All right. Let me see. The Flyers played the Red Wings in a hockey game last night, and they won four to three. You see? This is more serious than I thought. And I, I really enjoy seeing how seriously he takes this, where he is freaking out because he can't write. This is what he does. This is this is his job. And if he can't do that, what good is he? And, I, and I've had moments like this where, and, and again, I have a different job than Dan, but we, we have to do a lot of writing, whether it's short form or long form. We do have to do a lot of writing. And I've had uh, moments where, you know, we have to write to the pictures that we see on, uh, you know, let's say the first thing that you see when we come on the air for a game, oftentimes it's called the scene set. You know, so they'll show you a picture or a shot of the crowd, and here's a shot of the coach, and here's a shot of the quarterback warming up, and here's a shot of the crowd again, and then you know you'll see like the animation to like get the broadcast started, and then they have an aerial shot of the stadium, and uh, you know they bring you inside. So you have to write all these little, little phrases and little sentence, you know, just short sentences to match up with the fo- with the photos and the pictures and the video that you're seeing. And then you come on camera and you have to write something that is relatively short and accessible to a fan, but has a decent amount of context and information in it. And some days when you're going through all of this, it is it feels like it's impossible. Like you're trying to do it on the fly sometimes. Sometimes you're trying to write stuff down and it just doesn't come to you. Even though you're given the material like Dan and Casey are. Uh, you know, Dan has that, or uh, Casey has that line that says, you know, we're not, it's not like we're starving for stories. We write to the news. Right. So, you know, some days you just don't feel like you have it. And I totally understand. And I was curious if you had that same feeling, you as somebody who does a, a fair share of writing, how do you, like, do you ever get into those modes and how do you get out of those modes? I, I, I've never in my life had to write for, like, writing has never been my job, which has been, nice for me because I don't have to like, oh, if I don't get this out, you know, if I don't make this deadline, I'm not going to have food on the table. Um, but I, I, when writing, if I find myself just totally stumped like that, I still try to put out however many words I'll set a goal. Be like, all right, I need to write just a thousand words, just write, you know, sure. and just have it come out and then go back. And if you only keep 40 of those thousand words, at least you got 40 words. 
But I, I feel like for Dan, where this is like, hey, you've got to fill X amount of minutes or else. That could be a panic mode. Although I would say in, in the business of teaching, there's that feeling at first when you have to fill, you know, however many 48-minute periods. And it's almost a performance every time you get up there. And you need right. to kind of know what you're going to say and know what direction you're going to go and be be really overplanned. Is that that as a as a new teacher when you those first couple of years, it's that's the most nerve-wracking thing in the world is do I have enough? Is this going to be all right? Am I going to be able to fill that period because if you give a teenager 3 minutes of freedom, it turns into like, you know, Defcon 5 going on and everyone's screaming and it's just chaos. But uh that pressure to be on every day, it's 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 very I don't want to say well, I guess cool to see Dan be affected by that. It really shows the stakes, I think, that they're having. So I, f- I think that's in every profession, probably, where whatever you have to do that day needs to be done. It's like, oh, this has yeah. to be the thing that this has to be done and has to be good and better than just talking about the Red Wings and Flyers playing in a hockey game. Very cut and dry like that. Yeah, you have to give context and credence and, and background to all of this so that the fan at home can appreciate why it is important. Otherwise, why would you be sitting around watching a 35 second highlight on a hockey game who really cares right, you know right. but if you're given context about it then yeah you're gonna care well we have uh isaac enter the room and we get jeremy's voiceover explaining a little bit about him uh he started out as a stringer for the atlanta journal he won a pulitzer prize when covering the gemini missions and he retired as the london bureau chief for cnn so isaac has had Ooh. quite a career that is an incredible resume uh, a resume that anybody would be proud to have and i, I kind of like how we're getting the, the this info like obviously it's a narration device it, it, this letter writing technique but the content the content that we're getting from Jeremy is really good because you'll get a bio from Dana you know you'll learn a ton about Dana when Jeremy introduces her quote unquote to Louise you'll get a, you get we get a ton of info on Isaac right here this incredible resume and you already have six episodes now you know into the seventh worth of biographical material that you visually have experienced and orally have ex- have experienced. You've heard what these people have to say. So you already have this respect for them. And now, on top of all that, you get this really cool background on Isaac and Dana especially. And I feel like you can only appreciate them that much more. Oh, yeah. To your point, I love that we've been able to kind of perceive these things already. Like, you just you know that Isaac's an awesome newsman, and he's got yeah. this confidence in this history. But if they told us in the pilot... Oh, by the way, I was uh, I got a Pulitzer for covering the Gemini missions. You're kind of like, all right, that's a little bit. You're force feeding me this. Yeah, but I don't we, even we got to see it develop. I don't think they've ever mentioned the Pulitzer at any point until this moment, right? right? Yeah, they're just now telling you. But you you kind of knew, which is what's oh, yeah. great about it. Like he just has that vibe. So it's awesome to get that information now and be able to be like, oh yeah, that makes sense, and get a little more respect instead of like, all right, do I buy this? You're kind of being given the uh, the little bit of like a cherry on top. Instead of like, well, here, eat this. And you're like, well, do I want all this? You already know you want it before you get the cherry, which is cool. Exactly. But we find out that he came out of retirement to go run CSC. So once we found out that Luther Sachs was going to make this this cable network, that's always been his passion, and he comes out of retirement. So it's almost uh, like a pet project for him. It's been like a passion that he's always had. It's great to see him be able to pay off. So this is this great background that we're getting here. We have Isaac making his way to his office where Dana is waiting so they can talk. And they have this great... This great line, this whole run about uh, about his daughter's 16-year-old Republican boyfriend. 
My 16-year-old daughter is dating a Republican in her class named Chad. Chad's a 16-year-old Republican? That's right. I didn't know 16-year-olds had party affiliations. Chad was just elected president of the Connecticut Young Black Republican Caucus. He has a 3.9 GPA. He is co-captain of the lacrosse team. He plays the French horn and does volunteer work at a crisis hotline. It sounds wonderful. Dana, did you hear me? He's a Republican. A lot of folks are running in that direction these days, Isaac. Yeah? Well, I don't want them sniffing around my women. What are you gonna do? What any reasonable man would do. I'm calling a building contractor and installing a dungeon. <laughs> well, let me, let me also say this, too. Chad sounds like quite the catch. Chad is, he's already like an Isaac himself. He's building quite a little life for himself as a 16-year-old. <laughs> Well, and, and I guess this this also gives us a little bit more information uh, that, that clearly Isaac is a Democrat or certainly not a Republican at the very least because oh, yeah. he seems disgusted by the fact that uh, his daughter is dating a Republican. He's leaning pretty hard to the left, it sounds the hard like. left. And, and I, I like that Dana had that one little – just that one little thing. Hey, a lot, you know, a lot of people are, are, are leaning that way now <laughs> talking about Republicans. And remember the period of time that this is, this is taking place, 1999-ish – after the Clinton scandal, yep. and, and obviously we would have a Republican president in the 2000 election, too. I also enjoyed Dana saying, I didn't realize 16-year-olds had party affiliations. <laughs> you, did you have a party affiliation when you were 16? Uh, I don't think – I remember caring suddenly very, very much about politics our senior year in high school because yeah. I turned 18 at the beginning of the year and I could vote in that presidential election. And so, I couldn't. So suddenly I was like, whoa, yeah, you missed it by like a month basically, yeah, right? Basically. A little over. So I, I just made it in there, and I was psyched, and I, I voted for a loser. I went with John Kerry, so I think I, I decided I was a Democrat, I guess. But I think I was I was just really, like, uh, anti-Bush, I guess? I don't know. So uh, as they're wrapping up this conversation, Natalie comes in and asks uh, if Isaac has ever heard of Archibald Russell, whom he has not. And we get a nod to our girl, Kelly Kirkpatrick who apparently heard that uh, this guy had been carjacked, he was beaten up, and he wanted to, she wanted to find out if Isaac uh, knew who he was. He sounded familiar. But he yeah. says, no, I'm not sure who that is. But he grabs a nice bottle of Jim Beam and starts pouring himself a, a pretty healthy drink there <laughs> with the daylight still beaming in through his window. So I respect Isaac a lot right there. Yeah, it's a, it's, he's one of those people where you're like, I wouldn't mind living like that. That's no. a pretty good way to live. So we go to the next scene. It's the rundown meeting. We get some more background just about the, the show itself as we find out through Jeremy's letter writing. There's four rundowns a day. We have noon, six, eight, and ten. And he thinks back to a rundown a couple of weeks ago. He says a few weeks ago, actually. So I wanted to ask you this as well here. We've talked before about how Sports Center, which obviously Sports Night is very heavily based on, used to be just like it was, only on like twice a day. And so presumably it was like this where they had all day to kind of work on one show right but yeah, now it's, it's, now that it's more or less constant it feels like if you turn on espn the odds are better than good that you're going to have some kind of sports center-esque show if not sports center itself how do you think the the preparation now has changed versus versus then where they got four meetings going for just one hour of television basically yeah versus well, now where it's almost you know it's infinitely more airtime yeah so and, and you're absolutely right about that because in the time that this is written really you had like the six o'clock show and basically had like your 11 Eastern show. And then that was pretty much it. And there might've been like the 2 AM show as well, which was for the West coast. Uh, so which we will find out later in sports night that they do have like a late night crew. They do have like a 2 AM show and a different crew. So there are different crews that, that are 
anchoring sports night at right. CSC, which we find out later in the show. But it's like uh, the JV, the JV squad comes out at one o'clock. Yeah, they kind of like make it sound like that's like the redheaded stepchild of television, <laughs> and, and 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 that's not really the case anymore. Especially now that live television or live sports rights are so important. So when you do like Monday Night Football at eight o'clock, eight thirty Eastern time, you're not going to come on Sports Center probably until like midnight. So those shows, those later shows, are actually really important now, and they put a lot more time into the West Coast shows. But you're right; it was only like three three crews basically that did a Sports Center, and now. Uh, the last several years, they've gone to having a live sports center on in the morning, which wasn't the case before. They would basically take the 2 a.m. show and repeat it over and over and over and over again. Right. And then they would take the 11 p.m. show if they could and then repeat that over and over and over again. And really ESPN all the way until like three o'clock in the afternoon was just sports center reruns of the night before. And that's that that changed uh, probably about a decade ago where oh, they started yeah. putting in these live morning shows. And now every hour is almost the new television crew that comes in like they go from like 8 you know like 8 a.m until noon and then a new crew will come in for a couple of hours and then they have their own show at six and then they'll probably have some kind of game on and then it's you know like the scott van pelt version of sports center and then they have neil and stan who are the west coast sports center so there's so much more airtime filled live than there used to be when sports night was written oh yeah i remember a an ad i can't remember exactly the wording for it but it was basically like it would show a pro athlete like eating cereal watching sports center that it was the replay from the previous night and they had the tagline was something like when's your sports center what's your sports center do you remember that yeah. Ed? And it yeah, was, I do. yeah it was that like idea of well if you missed it at night it'll be on a couple more times tomorrow morning and that's kind of how i always watched it growing up as well as i would always catch the replay in the morning instead of seeing it at night so you got you got to find out yesterday's scores in the morning basically before you could just like pull up the app and be like well here they all are and I think that's part of the reason why it's shifted so much because people like, you know, executives realized, well, why don't we need to give a fresh take on this or a different angle or a different perspective? Or maybe these personalities in the morning can give you uh, a more entertaining way to absorb your sports rather than just waking up in the morning, get it, logging onto the Internet and looking at scores. Because, you know, I, I, I do think highlight shows in some capacity are still really important because not every fan is going to just pull up every single highlight on their phone and do their own version of Sports Center just by clicking uh, you know, their screen a couple of times. If you can give it to them in a way that's packaged cleanly and efficiently and it still gives them the information that they need, I still think that works. Right. And that actually goes back to what Jeremy said when he was putting together his eight-minute highlight. Remember, he said something right. about well, if they want the score, they can just read the newspaper. It's almost the same thing. Yeah, you have to offer something more than just the score or the highlights. So we find out in the middle of the... Uh, Rundown meeting, Isaac comes to realize that Archibald Russell is A.K. Russell, who was this apparently phenomenal pitcher in the Negro Leagues, but he was overshadowed because he played, as Isaac says, with Gibson and Jackie. So he was kind of overshadowed by Jackie Robinson and, and Josh Gibson, who were two big Negro League stars. Um, and Jeremy says that he feels bad in his letter to his sister because they want to do a story on this. Hey, mention something up front. And, and Jeremy kind of shuts it down like, oh, really? This doesn't seem like a big enough story. It only has local interest in Kansas City. And he right. realizes when he sees Isaac's face, like, oh, crap, that, that was a misstep right there. Yeah, he, he said, you know, the, the, the local interest thing is something that, that hits us now today because a lot of producers probably feel like they have to filter out certain stories because they don't appeal to a broad enough audience. And, you know, that, that's, I think, sometimes where the argument of, quote, unquote, West Coast bias comes in because, you know, people are thinking, well, why do, why do we have to worry about 
you know, the Dodgers on the East Coast because nobody really cares about the Dodgers on the East Coast. But when we do our 11, you know, when, when we do our 1 a.m. Eastern Sports Center, then that's when we'll really get into the West Coast stuff and, mm. and into the highlights and talk about those teams because only those people are really watching TV at that point. So we have a scene change, and sure enough, Casey is delivering that little bit about AK on the air where he's pretty much filling people in on who he is. He says, uh, what was the line? Archibald A.K. Russell is probably not a name you're familiar with unless you were lucky enough to watch the Kansas City Monarchs play baseball the way it was meant to be played. Which is kind of a Sorkinism, right? I mean, we've heard that already yeah. He says in somewhere this, else. In yeah, if you haven't seen Shakespeare the way it was meant to be played, he kind of gives and the and exact gets, same line. Yeah, that gets used again in the West Wing and, and, and a couple of other times in, in Sorkin shows, which I, I, I always like that. Like, I, I would like to use that more in my everyday life. Um, a sad moment comes up here as literally seconds after Casey explains that he was dragged out of the Cadillac, that his sons bought him for his 80th birthday, he was beaten, he was in the hospital, Kim walks in and hands a note, and they end up creating a graphic uh, explaining that he has indeed died. There's a really great, credit to Tommy Shalami for uh, for the directing here, a great uh, it's shot at the end of this scene where it's in the background on a monitor, the graphic, and then Isaac just kind of leaning on his hand in the foreground looking very, very sad. It's a very powerful image. As you see, you realize, oh, no, like this is really hitting him hard here. Yeah, they're kind of and, – and you can see the graphic being typed as uh, – Yeah, they're even as, checking as the they're dates. Showing, yeah, yeah. They're, they're like, oh, make sure you have the 1917. It was 1917. And you see the graphic year being typed underneath Archibald Russell's name, and that's – you're absolutely right. It's a really, really good piece of directing right there. We come back in an editing room. This little part of this bothers me as Kim and Elliot are starting to argue about what a goalie in hockey's equipment is. And they're debating whether or not he's wearing a catcher's mitt or a first baseman's mitt as if he's wearing either of those and not a hockey goalie's <laughs> catching glove. So it's just like, what are they like? What are you talking about, guys? But I mean, ostensibly the same thing. But, you know, yeah, what I'm the, about. And, and these two are becoming like this is becoming like their thing, like Kim and Elliot, uh, the back and forth that they have because they've already discussed booze. You know, yeah. Hennessy or Cravasi or Cravasi or Cognac, and they've discussed tobacco. Uh, <laughs> you know, he's smoking a cigar. No, he's talking about the dog earlier in this episode. He's smoking a cigar. No, he's smoking a pipe. So, you know, they've got they've got alcohol, tobacco, and I think eventually they'll talk about firearms at some oh, point yeah. just to really cap off the trio there. It's it's nice to see their back and forth. It's just kind of like. They're the foils to each other for some reason over these yeah. little minuscule details. Absolutely. But they're talking about a, a hockey fight in which the bench is cleared and the goalies ended up going at each other, which has happened more than a few times. I feel like I've seen this a lot. I, I distinctly remember Colorado against Detroit, I want to say. It was like Patrick Waugh was the goalie for Colorado for the Avalanche. And I don't know if it was like Chris Osgood maybe or Mike Vernon or somebody like that for the Detroit Red Wings. And they like left their nets and like met up near center ice everybody else was kind of brawling already and i think they were just like hell i want to join in on this too and they looked they probably looked at each other were like you in you in on this let's get in on this <laughs> i feel like for a goalie that's got to be a moment of like all right finally um we've got while this is all happening casey talking to dana about her hair where this is another sorkinism here where she's like you don't like it you don't think it's good and Casey asks the room, tell Dana her hair looks good. And they say, your hair looks good. So that's kind of nice to see that thing covering over some some ground as well. Um, and we get background about, about Dana, some interesting facts about her, which it's kind of cool to find out, well, how did this woman 
become so into sports? Where did she get this passion from that she seems to have? Dana Whitaker is the executive producer of Sports Night, a great accomplishment for a woman her age. She got her love of sports from her father and six brothers, one of whom plays for the Denver Broncos. She got her education from a series of exclusive all-girls schools that her mother insisted she attend so that she wouldn't grow up to be like her father and six brothers. The result is an irresistible combination of brilliance inside the office and something a little less than brilliance anywhere outside of it. Which I think is an apt description of like everybody in this show it's just true. about you know like and and i and so many different i would say sorkin characters in general and i would say probably a lot of a lot of characters that are uh entertaining to watch in i'm sure a myriad of shows they're they're really good uh in one area of their lives more often than not professionally they're really really good at what they do and then you put them in any other scenario like so many of us, and uh, they just turn into absolute train wrecks. Oh, yeah. Take them out of their comfort zone, and, and nothing good ends up happening. Exactly. <laughs> so we've got uh, Casey and Dana then having a little walk and talk while that's going on. We find out Gordon is taking her to Gracie Mansion for a dinner with the mayor. So she's going to be rubbing elbows with Giuliani, apparently, which is pretty pretty awesome. And Yeah, I was going to say, Gra- I didn't know what Gracie Mansion was, and then you find out that's the official residence. Right. This is like a big deal here. Saying, yeah, absolutely. We have Jeremy explaining... Casey's Gordon issues, and the way he explains it is kind of perfect. The Casey-Dana saga is pretty much this. Dana thinks that Casey's jealous of her relationship with Gordon, her new boyfriend, which he is. Casey claims he has no interest in Dana one way or the other, which he does. And we find out that Casey has this envy of men with postgraduate degrees. And we even get more background on, on Gordon in this episode. We get a well, last we find, name. We find out his last name. It's Gordon Gage. Gordon which Gage. Is a pretty, pretty badass last name. Oh, yeah. Like, just in general, I think that's a pretty badass name, Gordon Gage. Gordon and Gage, B-A-M-A-J-D. <laughs> He's got an M-A, too. And it's like, I, I kind of feel that way sometimes. I, all I have is my undergrad degree. Uh, I mean, you're you're a holder of a of a master's. I, I do. Uh, you know, yes. I, I we you and I both know uh, several people. I'm sure with their PhDs. I know several medical doctors, mm-hmm. and I'm always intimidated by them in some capacity. It's it's a valid. I mean, not I'm not anything to be you know intimidating by at all. Not me, but certain people. You're like, damn, really? You did what? How much school did you have? Yeah. So it's definitely. You can see how and, much and it bothers a, Casey. And he's got a great title, too. Even though even though I know Casey kind of, like, ribs at it a little bit because, you know, he has that line, you know, what about Deputy Gordon? And Dana goes, don't call him Deputy Gordon. You know, but still, he's got a cool title, Assistant U.S. Attorney for the Southern District, which, which I, is also I, yeah, I was gonna say. Later, later in other shows. I believe in the newsroom, it's definitely used in the West Wing, but I believe in the newsroom as well, uh, Mackenzie's boyfriend yeah, that he's, he's, he's trying to make uh, Will jealous with, right? Yes, and he's kind of using her to get uh, to get some television credit so he can parlay that into a new election or something, right? Exactly, yeah. So he, he's got that same title. So that's I declare that a Sorkinism. We get uh, this fantastic run. This is one of my favorite lines, favorite scenes, really, in this episode. We find out apparently that Gordon has had some mistake with a big case against a mob, mobster named Sammy Galino that she says, do not mention that. So something big was going on. And Casey says, I won't mention anything, but then goes on to kind of keep ribbing him and ribbing him and ribbing him. We have a scene change. We're in the conference room with uh, Dan explaining that someone needs to fix his computer because it's in several pieces on his floor. (laughs) So he's still (laughs) struggling with his writer's block. He wants patience and support. He's taking it very seriously. And this is also some solid gold comedy here where Natalie just hits him in the face with a glass of water. (laughs) And then then does it again, too, after what I think is a really good reaction from Dan, like, why did you do that? He's trying to stay yeah, he's really so, calm. He's, so, he's like, okay, why he's did that happen? To, he's trying to stay relaxed in this moment. And then 
Natalie hits him again. You know, it's, it's the element of surprise. The only other thing I wrote down about this was backwards hat, Dan? Oh, yeah. Come on. That's a, it's a, for a guy who's priding himself on, on being pretty cool, he looks a little bit funky in this scene. He's just kind of wearing I mean, a hot clothes. Is this, is, this, is this kind of Ken Griffey? Is this Ken Griffey's influence on all of us? Because, I mean, I would say like mid to late 90s and really mid to early 2000s was really when we, I mean, I think I've kind of fell in love with Ken Griffey, even like maybe even earlier than that. But I didn't really appreciate him like in the early 90s of, like when Little Big League came out, I didn't really appreciate Ken Griffey Jr. for what he was. Mm. And as I got a few years older, that's when I really started to appreciate him, not only for his ability, but for his style. So that's when I started wearing a baseball cap backwards, too. So maybe Dan, <laughs> who's who's like right around, you know, 28, 29, 30, is probably feeling it, too, I guess. Oh, I'm yeah. not sure. Well, I, for one, absolutely adore Ken Griffey Jr. And I got to have him on my team for a whopping like half a season in 2008 when he came to the Sox. <laughs> but That's right. I remember vividly, and I still have trouble putting a hat on backwards now because growing up playing both pony baseball and then into high school in high school baseball, if we didn't play catcher, we were not allowed to wear our hats backwards. We'd get like scolded for wearing our hats backwards because it disrespected the game. And I'm like, but Griffey oh, knows like, it. Yeah, <laughs> and, like... and you know what? I, I made the baseball team uh, freshman year. I know you, you did as well, but I eventually quit <laughs> after like, I think two weeks because I was like, this doesn't feel fun anymore. Like <laughs> I loved baseball so much. Like you and I were teammates at one point. Like we played against each other throughout, like mm-hmm. you know, elementary school and junior high and all that. And uh, as soon as I got to high school, I was like, man, this just doesn't, this doesn't feel fun anymore. Plus, I don't, I couldn't really hit at all. Like I was, I think I was a really, really, really good catcher, and I, w- I could not hit to save my life. So we transition into a new scene in the newsroom where Gordon is waiting, reading the newspaper, apparently getting ready to take uh, Dana out to Gracie Mansion. Casey walks up, and this is such a fantastic run between the two of them. I I absolutely adore this scene, and there are so many great little reactions, and it's such like a little power struggle between these two guys. And it makes it very clear that Dana has been talking to Gordon about Casey. And I, if I'm, you know, if I'm Gordon in that scenario, I'm, you know, I'm clearly a very confident guy. Oh yeah. Make a lot of money. I've got a great job. I got a great girlfriend, whatever. But clearly this is ribbing at him enough because he knows a lot about Casey. Casey knows a lot about Gordon. So Dana's talking to everybody about both these men in her life. And they're both kind of going at it in this little power, like this mini power battle. Oh yeah. There's those great little smiles. You know that Gordon is just oozing confidence in in this conversation he's even got that little crack about like i'm happy having sex with dana every night he's just like really letting him have it and when he's when he says that line casey has the great reaction you know (laughs) and then has the pause and that's when like i said earlier the laugh track comes in at like just the right times the laugh track comes in at like just the right moment subtly and it really enhances that scene and I love Gordon kind of still calling him, pulling out his his vast knowledge about like, oh, you know, it's illegal to uh to have your Monday night football pool there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, I love he says, why don't you leave the smarty boy remarks to those with with, with postgraduate degrees? Exactly. When he says that, you absolutely know that Dana has uh, shared some intimate details about Casey's biggest fears. Sometimes, like, hey, you know, you know what Casey is really intimidated by the fact that uh, people have postgraduate degrees and that's something that Gordon uses to to turn on turn on Casey at that point. Oh, it's just so good. I love that whole thing. It's the only Gordon scene in the episode, but it's so good. Ted McGinley is so good in this character for just these little moments. He's so funny and he's just he's got that like, yeah, that's right. I'm confident. I'm a little bit cocky. You you can't resist me. 
I I don't think like I I, I feel like eventually you're gonna not like him. Like it's hard not to like him still at this point. Like even though he might be a little smarmy or or cocky, but you just it's hard not to like this guy because of how funny he is. So Casey Casey kind of runs away with his tail between his legs, heads out to the stage, gets behind the desk. We find out that he ended up writing Dan's script for him, which Dan is not feeling great about. He's he's super stressed out. Casey just says, look, just relax, just drink your coffee, let's have a good show, and as he takes a big sip, who comes out behind him with an air horn but Natalie? <laughs> and a massive spit take from Dan here. And it is a great spit take. That And that's not an easy thing to to get down correctly. You know, like, that's a hard thing to really sell. And and I, I guess this is a Sorkinism, too, because what, in Studio 60, they have spit take theater? Oh, yeah. They, there's a whole sketch based around just everybody keeps doing spit takes. <laughs> So it's something apparently he finds very, very funny, which I think I think that's funny that this guy who has such like a seemingly deep knowledge of, of politics and of literature and of film is like still so amused by spit takes that he uses it so frequently. And, and it's not an, like I said, it's not an easy thing to pull off and it's not an easy thing to sell. And I feel like Dan and Natalie, the timing of it was really good. And it was pretty large. Like like you said, it's a pretty massive. Spit oh, it's a, it's a flat out waterfall coming out yeah, of that guy. No doubt. Geyser-esque. And my my next, I just keep saying my favorite part, but another great moment as, as Dan is trying to tell Natalie, it's not the hiccups. You can't scare writer's block out of me. She hits him with another glass with of another water. Another glass of water. Yeah. She was just waiting around for, for another chance. It's either phenomenal acting by Peter Krause or it was really really possibly unscripted and he is laughing so hard at that second water glass throw to the, to the face there that I'm like was that really unscripted and just like a solid kind of joke or was that just really really good acting from Peter Krause cuz i mean his his laugh it that looks like a honest to god down to your belly type of laugh oh yeah it, it was really good and we even have elliot going kind of in the background somebody get did at all like i feel like they were just ad-libbing from there because it was it just un- unscripted and, and just pure funny for everybody yeah even like the I, camera it, operators in the background you see them laughing when it happens yeah i think that was really really well done it's really good acting although i will say like i don't know if natalie <laughs> or like anybody for that matter if they did that to an anchor like 10 minutes before you're right. going on air like how how would that go? I can't imagine that would go over very well at all. So we go into our next scene. The show is starting to come down, and we get another great moment here where Natalie comes in to explain, ah, oh, guys, you have to be watching out. The teleprompter has a typo on it. And I know you were very excited to talk about this. <laughs> yeah, so so for those who don't know, this is not – I thought for a while this was an apocryphal story because I never saw it in person. And then as the years go by, you learn that this is an actual thing that happened, and this is a direct take from an actual episode of Sports Center. Where Steve Levy, who is still anchoring Sports Center, is also a college football play-by-play announcer, he uh, had a bit of an issue uh, <laughs> where he was reading an injury report on an NFL player and a story related to one of his injuries, and he said instead of saying bulging disc, he said bulging dick. <laughs> the agent claims that at the request of the team, Hurst has been playing with a bulging dick disc in his neck since the start of the season. A Patriots spokesperson declined comment on the matter. Others that are banged up from around the NFL. Jeff Hostetler re-injured his left shoulder on this hit by Chad Hennings late in the first half of the Cowboys-Raiders games. Status to be addressed on Wednesday. Giants quarterback Dave Brown left in the fourth quarter after having the win knocked out of him in the game against the Eagles. As far as the Lions quarterback is concerned, Scott Mitchell Sprained right ankle when Jim Flanagan rolled into him. Status is day to day. 
And you hear the, the laughing in the background and, and the little subtle things like, uh, glad we don't have video of that. That's Keith, <laughs> that's Keith Olbermann. Keith Olbermann was his partner during that show. And obviously a lot of this uh, is based on Dan Patrick and Keith Olbermann and, and all that. Uh, but Keith Olbermann was the co-anchor of that. And during like, and it's a long clip, like it's on YouTube. It's a long clip going through an entire injury report. It's like two minutes long. And Keith keeps, you can hear him laughing and it's making Steve Levy laugh. And then he'll throw in like a subtle barb, like the, like the thing he says uh, about glad we don't have video of that. And Levy just can't stop. He can't keep it together for this whole thing. So there's these long like pauses where he's trying to giggle and com- you know, compose himself. So this is taken directly from an actual incident that happened on TV. And it is definitely one of the most famous sports center moments by far. Oh, that's that's solid gold, that whole thing. And I love how they just took it and threw it right in there to kind of just making making reality a piece of the fiction here. But it is so, so funny. And it would be, I would almost rather like to see Casey slip and do it and just have that whole experience go down on the show. Collins is expected to be sidelined a week to ten days with a bulging dick. Uh-oh. Oh, that's a big team sport. My next line in the script was, let's go to the videotape. We might have gotten some phone calls. We get a little background through the voiceover about Natalie as well. Nothing really about her background as a character, but we do hear uh, a mention to the previous episode. I'm sure you've been, you heard about it in the papers. And he says that I fell asleep making her dinner and things have been awkward. So we do get confirmation that they're having this kind of, well, what's going on between us uh, feeling between Natalie and Jeremy there. That's really the end of our flashbacks. We come back then as the, as the show's going to wrap up today. So everyone comes back in just really drunk. Dana is dancing. She got him thrown out of the bar. Uh, and she gets pretty flirty up on Casey, which is, is both uh, adorable in a way. And you see Casey kind of smile as he gets to start dancing with her. And also a little bit like, ooh, we're keeping that kind of flirtation alive, despite the fact that apparently the relationship with Gordon's going pretty well. Dana can move a little bit, which oh, yeah. is one thing I noticed. But I did write down all the way to the end of this episode when Jeremy ends it and they're kind of panning back. So much white person dancing. Oh, My yeah. goodness. So much white person dancing. Like just seeing, like, you know, the rest of the crew and Chris and like everybody just trying to, trying to dance is really, really kind of awkward and funny. Like Dan. When he brings in uh, Stacy, the volleyball player, Stacy uh, Kerr, yeah. Stacy Kerr, who plays on the uh, professional volleyball tour, uh, the way Dan's dancing, just kind of moving his arms very awkwardly. So much white person dancing. In this Although episode. as they pan out, you see the one guy really, really yeah. dancing is Dave. <laughs> it's Dave. He's, Dave. The he's cool, like going crazy. They're they're basically like they're basically saying like white people can't dance. Dave, the black guy, is the most rhythmic person that works on this particular crew. So oh, just yeah. be aware of that. I don't think it's. I don't think they meant anything malicious by it, but it was just funny to me. Like, yeah, subtle racism there. <laughs> I think <laughs> like super subtle, but little little tiny bit, a little tiny subtle racism there. But uh, maybe one of my favorite lines ever in this episode is one of the last things that Jeremy says because Stacy asks him you know, how do you write that way? Like, what's going on in your head? Oh, yes. And this is maybe my favorite line of this entire series. And in that moment, Dan was reminded once again why he wanted to write in the first place. It's for the same reason anybody does anything. To impress women. Like, I just, I, I've, I've, I've lived, I feel like I've lived that line oh, yeah. most of my life. Every, almost everything I've ever done in some capacity is to try to impress somebody. More often than not, it's try to impress a woman. It's true. And it, it, I love that you could just see Dan, like, a switch go off in his mind, like, oh, I got it back. It's cool. Yeah, the exactly. jinx is off. Although, at that moment, a, a very creepy, though still funny thing, she's sitting on top of the photocopier, 
and a little you know the page comes out so we get apparently a little copy of her of her backside there yeah, and Casey was, Casey creepy. picks up the copy kind of looks around a little bit and like stuffs it in his jacket <laughs> that's like really creepy like that's that should not be something that's happening but apparently and, and I don't know if this is uh did you ever do like get a thrill out of photocopying your ass? Because I don't think I ever once did that in my life, nor did I have any interest in doing that. Never. I I used to do handprints a lot when I, I worked at a bank during college, <laughs> and I would just like sit there and smack my hand on it and do like various black and white pictures. I don't know why. I have no idea why I would do that, but it was just something to pass the time and and sort of waste company resources. I it, guess. it really does. It really does tell me a significant amount about you. Steve. Oh yeah. I mean, you, you've done the the face on the on the copy machine at some point. Everybody has. I, I feel. I, like. I actually have it. Surprisingly enough, and I just like I said, I just I never really thought about that right. as like something that was slapstick worthy. But the next not, time, like the like next time you're by a copy machine, I want you to just just press <laughs> one uh, one cheek either on your face or ass, whichever one you prefer. Press Ever. a cheek on that thing and press copy. You will enjoy it. I don't know what right. it is, but there's uh, something about it. If I give that a shot at any point or have the opportunity to, I'm going to take a photo of myself doing that. Oh yeah, and send that to you immediately. We'll post it on the website. People will love that. I think I will at least. So this episode wraps up with also a little development in the relationship between Jeremy and Natalie. She kind of yanks him aside as everyone's dancing. Boogie Shoes, by this point, is blaring through the newsroom. Yep. And she says, you know, I, I didn't want to startle you. And Jeremy says, are you going to throw water at me? <laughs> Which is another good line. She gives him a kiss, says it's no big deal. It's okay. And she hands him stamps. So we've got this like, okay, are they, would you mark this as they are officially dating now from from that point forward? I think, I think whether, whether, your definition of dating is like they're in a relationship or this is going to be something that they have begun, you know, might be casual or whatever. This is the start. This is the true start, like a first kiss. It's a really like sweet first kiss moment. I really liked it. We all like as I think you and I are like relatively sensitive uh, individuals. So I think we appreciate moments like that. Like that was a really like kind of heart melting moment. Yeah. Like we always we all wish we could have a moment like that with somebody like Natalie. We've seen their kind of attraction building literally since the first episode. We saw last episode Jeremy kind of start trying to show, okay, I'm reciprocating those those feelings that you might be having. And then we just finally get to see it all come together. It is a really sweet moment that with two just really nice characters. So it's good to see that kind of developing. And it'll continue to develop throughout the rest of the series, really, which is great. And I think that's a, that's a hallmark of Sorkin when it comes to writing relationships or love or whatever. Uh, that he has, he he does like to, and he and he's been quoted as as to saying this. He does like to extend it out. Like he doesn't necessarily need to uh, make everybody around him happy and say, "All right, these two are together now. Here you go. You've been waiting for it. Here's your reward." And I mean, even six and a half, seven episodes is a long time to set up an initial flirtation and finally the the you know the, it coming to fruition. So Aaron Sorkin's been quoted as saying, like, do we really need to have these two people together? All right, let's find a good time for them to get together. And he oftentimes seemingly just stretches it, stretches it out for a long period of time. Oh, yeah. I think kind of intrinsically built into a lot of those relationships, too, is the fact that most of these characters work together in some way. So I think that that complication keeps that relationship fresh, even if it's not officially like, oh, yes. now they're a couple. You still get to see them dealing with things that are happening in the workplace or, or kind of testing each other because these people which is something i don't think you necessarily get on a lot of other shows these people aren't just like it's not jeremy and jeremy is natalie's boyfriend she's also you know they're co-workers it's yeah. not just where a lot of characters on, on other shows might just be like oh and this new character is such and such as girlfriend that's her only role we get to see them still and see them 
kind of working with each other, even if it's not necessarily just on uh, on a romantic front. And I do like that. It's uh, Natalie is technically Jeremy's superior. Oh and yeah, that is kind of like that. That you don't always necessarily see that with any shows, let alone an Aaron Sorkin show. And so that's kind of, that's kind of cool to see that she's the superior person in this relationship that is uh, apparently blossoming, and uh, she was the one who was willing to kind of take it to the next step because Jeremy did feel like he was very hesitant, not because he didn't like her, but because he was just worried about the scenario, whether it was professionally or personally, he was just worried about it. So it was cool that Natalie kind of just took the step forward. Yeah, definitely. And that's that's really all. Our episode wraps up on a, on a high note. It is really just a funny episode. Gives us all that nice detail about the characters, and it ends on, how can you end on a better note than just cranking bookie shoes over the Absolutely. title card? Underrated song, by the way. Like Underrated, po- like, happy poppy song. Oh, I defy you to not dance like a white person in the, in the newsroom when that thing comes <laughs> yeah. on. No matter how much rhythm you think you may have, somehow you revert to 1990s white person when you hear that song and start dancing. You want to be a Dave, you end up being an Elliot. That's just <laughs> how it works. I think that's the quote that is a perfect wrap to this episode. <laughs> well, thank you guys for joining us on Those Stories Plus. What do we have for them next week, Adam? Well, we dive into episode eight of Sports Night. It is titled Thespis. We're going to be really excited to talk about this. We're getting into Thanksgiving time. It's a really good episode. You find uh, a little bit of confidence in Jeremy. I've got a personal story to share about uh, some jewelry that uh, that it is directly involved with Thespis, which I know that's one hell of a tease. And I, I'm sure <laughs> And in the meantime, you can visit us on our website at thosestoriespod.weebly.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at thosestoriespod. You can follow me on Twitter at Adam Amin, Steve at SJCIM. And, of course, our podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher. So feel free to subscribe. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>